Well, good morning, Terra Nova. We are in the middle of a series called uh, Ancient Upgrade, as Patty shared with you guys. And what we're doing is we're taking a fresh look at some of the foundational truths that we hold in common with Christians throughout all eras of history and, and seeking to apply those things in the time and the place that we uniquely live today. All right, and so for the past few weeks, um, we've been covering some different topics that really revolve around the heart of the Christian faith, and in particular, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Three weeks ago, we started out by talking about the incarnation, uh, which means that God is with us. Um, The fact that Jesus tabernacled or was present among us, full of grace and truth, and we talked about the implications for that, just the fact that God would humble himself enough to become a man in order to identify with us. And then we talked about what the uh, the implications of that are for us as his followers today, what it looks like for us to to be present um, in the lives of those that God has put around us and full of grace and truth. Two weeks ago, we talked about the cross, God for us, the great demonstration of mercy and sacrifice that was shown to us through that act that made reconciliation with him possible. And then last week, we talked about the resurrection, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, overcoming sin and death and that because of that, it validates everything that he said and did, and it gives us a sure hope. These things are at the core of what we believe. But growing in our understanding of these things is a process, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And that process is called discipleship, which is the process of following after and becoming more like someone. Um, each of us are disciples of something or someone, whether we know it or not. It could be a group of people, um, a, a, another person, a philosophy but we're all disciples of someone or something. A disciple of Christ, though, is one who's following after and becoming more like him. The mission of the church, universally and here specifically at Terra Nova, uh, is to make more and better disciples, as Jesus commanded us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And implied in that is revealing Jesus to those who don't yet know him, but also revealing Jesus to those who do know him and helping them to become more and more like him. Uh, till either they pass away or he returns. And and today what we're going to do is we're going to examine from the scriptures what that process of discipleship looks like from the scriptures. But before we dig in, uh, I'd ask that you would just pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, every time we come before you and have an opportunity to hear from you through your word is a blessing. And we don't want to take that for granted. We just say thank you. And um, and we pray, Father, that anything in our hearts or minds that would serve to distract from what you want to reveal to us today, that you'd remove. And any any strongholds in our lives, Father, that you you would help us to set those aside through the power of your Spirit, that we might be able to hear from you and trust you. And and I just pray, Father, that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be acceptable to you this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be digging into a variety of, or a bunch of different passages, so you'll want to have your Bible on hand, and if you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up. Somebody will be coming around from the back to give you one of those. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep this, and um, otherwise you can just drop it off in the back on the way out. As the Bibles are being passed out, I I want to spend a moment talking about, first, what discipleship is not. Many of you may have grown up in the church and seen various um, models of discipleship some of which may have been more complete than others. I just want to touch upon that for a moment, because I know that a popular one that many of us, including myself, have um, 
have participated in, uh, it's, it's not wrong in and of itself. It's only a partial view of discipleship. It's, it's more of that linear process. That the, the idea that we, we kind of go in a straight line always toward God, or I've also seen it demonstrated through the diagram of a, um, a baseball diamond. You, know, you have four steps toward maturity as a disciple. Maybe first base is um, you know, mastering the fundamentals of, of the faith. And you know, the second one is, uh, you know, taking a spiritual gifts test so that you can determine how you're best equipped to serve. And then you move on to evangelism. And finally, if you've really arrived and you've, you've reached the end of uh, your discipleship journey, then you're making more disciples. And, and the thing is that there are problems with this more program-oriented understanding of what discipleship is. And the first one is that it communicates the idea that completing a program equals full maturity. There's not really an allowance in this view to circle back around time and again to the areas where we need to continue to grow and learn and be sanctified. And and this can also really serve to depress people who think discipleship's a program and once I complete it, shouldn't I be fully mature? And they're not, and that's just super discouraging. The second thing, the second problem with more program-oriented discipleship is that it tends to be more performance-based. It evaluates based upon the externals, but it doesn't really tell you what's going on in somebody's soul. This is a, you know, it's a limited analogy, but I think back to my high school days where I did fairly well in my classes, but I attribute most of that to my ability to memorize things for tests pretty well. Um, If you asked me, you know, a week after I took some math test where I had to memorize several formulas or a science test where I had to memorize some of the elements in the periodic table, forget it, you know? Not to mention today, I, I've, I can't remember any of that stuff. The, the point being, I never really owned a lot of that material that I was exposed to in school because it was just a, a memorization for me. Likewise, just because you and I may have memorized hundreds of scriptures or the Romans Road for evangelism, it doesn't necessarily mean that your sin is being rooted out or that you're becoming more like Christ. These things, scripture memory, the other disciplines, they have their place in our, in our growth as believers. In fact, lately God's been impressing upon me the need to be memorizing more scripture, actually, to help me grow in my prayer life and also to combat against some lies that I'm more prone to believing and replace those with truth. But in reality, the journey of a disciple is typically much more messy and unpredictable than any kind of a program that has a distinct start and ending. And we can see this especially in the life of Jesus' disciples. And in particular, we get a vivid picture of that in the life of the Apostle Peter. What we get to see in this man's journey, Peter's journey, is a lifetime of of triumphs and failures, of mountaintop experiences and embarrassing moments. And probably most of us here can relate a lot more to that than we can to a neat and tidy process of sanctification or of discipleship. And all of our journeys also began in the same place as Peter's. This is another area where we could identify with him, and that is as observers. Jesus first invited Peter, to come and see him, what he was about, what he did, before Peter ever committed to following him. And if you're a Christian, you were at one point looking from the outside in as well. You were an observer. You may have watched other believers interact with one another and serve other people. You may have witnessed circumstances and events in your life or other people's lives that were beyond your ability to explain, apart from God. You may have read the scriptures, and in the process of all that, You use these things to evaluate, to observe, and see whether this Jesus of Scripture was really credible. And this is where we find Peter as we begin to trace his discipleship journey early on in the the book of Luke. 
we are, we're going to start in Luke chapter 5, and as you're turning there, verses 1 through 11, I'll give you kind of a backdrop for what's taking place here. Peter and uh, Jesus actually have already met before. In fact, Peter's even experienced um, Jesus healing his mother-in-law. So there has been exposure before this, just so you know. He knew who Jesus was. He probably had conversations with him, spent some time. Jesus had already invited him to come and see. But on this occasion, Peter's more of an incidental bystander. He's, he's not bystander. He's not there to participate in what Jesus is doing. But they're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Peter and some of his fishermen friends had actually just come in from a night of unsuccessful fishing where they'd caught nothing. And they're tending to their nets, repairing and cleaning them. And, and Jesus is just a little ways off, it says, pressed in by the, the crowds as he teaches the word of God to them. And probably both for practical reasons and because of his, his wisdom and understanding of what he was about to call Peter to, um, he, he goes over, gets in a boat, and he asks Peter to push out from the shore so that he's in a better position to preach to the people. And so he continues to teach and reveal God through his word. But he comes to this point uh, where he says, okay, Peter, now I want you to push out into the deeper waters. And, and he probably moves far enough away so that the people on the shoreline can no longer see or hear what's going on. And he says, cast your nets into the water for a catch. And that's where we pick up in verse 5. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. One of the interesting things that I noted right away as I read this passage is that Jesus calls Peter to trust him in an area, in an area where, where Peter would have known, quote-unquote, best. Now, Peter had had that exposure to Jesus in healing his mother-in-law, yes, but healings weren't unheard of or unknown in, his, in that day in Israel. And, um, and Peter probably did know at this point that Jesus had been a carpenter from Nazareth and probably questioned, what's this guy know about fishing? And yet at the same time, he had seen enough at this point to respect him and, and to say, okay, because you said so, I will do this. And Peter trusts him. And, and I want you to think for a moment about what the implications are if he had not obeyed Jesus here, and what he would have missed out on. It was in trusting Jesus enough to go against his better judgment that he experienced God's power, and this turned out to be the tipping point for him, to go from being merely an observer to a committed follower of Jesus. So back to the story, Peter casts out these nets, and they haul in this huge catch of fish. The boats are beginning to sink, and Peter realizes this is more than coincidence, that something supernatural has taken place, that this man has the power of God in him. And as he sees Jesus more clearly, he sees his, himself more clearly and his own sin more clearly. And, and he gets something here really right, and that is that he realizes that our sin does keep us apart from a holy God. But he also misses part of the picture because he asks Jesus to leave, not understanding that Jesus' ultimate heart and purpose in coming was to draw mankind closer to himself. Jesus then goes on to reassure Peter, saying, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. 
And then we're told that when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Don't miss this. This is a huge, huge sacrifice on their part. Obviously, they had been impacted to such a degree that they were willing to leave behind this small fortune that they would have acquired through this huge catch of fish, and even more impressively, their entire livelihood and all the security that comes with that. And so they, they take this risk, they leave everything behind, and they move from being merely observers to followers of Jesus. Let's take a look at another memorable occasion in Peter's journey as a disciple, and we're going to find this one in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. And I'll give you a little bit of the backdrop um, as you're turning there. So in this, in this um, setting, in this, on this occasion, Jesus had just fed uh, 5,000 people miraculously with just a few loaves and fish and had been teaching them about God. And he was exhausted, and he, he said to his disciples, I need to retreat, and I need to go up to this mountain and pray and spend some time with God. And before he does that, he actually sends out his disciples ahead of him uh, to, um, to wait for him out on the Sea of Galilee. They're out in their boat. And Jesus spends, we find out, the whole night really praying. And, um, and we're told that in the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., the winds and, and a storm began to come across the Sea of Galilee, which is typical to this day in that region. And that, that is when they see this figure coming to them on, on the water. And this is where we pick up in verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him saying, Truly, this is the Son of God. This isn't the first time that Jesus has demonstrated his authority over creation before the disciples. It's not even the first time that he's calmed a storm. In Matthew chapter 8, he was actually in the boat at the time when he stilled the storm. It was another one of those do not be afraid moments that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. And I think that there's an important lesson to be learned here. It's a testament to the need for repetition in our lives as disciples before we really get what God is trying to teach us. The repeated teaching, in particular for the disciples here, was do not be afraid. The idea that if it's a result of obedience to Jesus, that you find yourself in danger or distress or seasons of difficulty, then there's no need to fear. That's what he'd been trying to drive home with his disciples. He knew what was ahead for them. God is likely repeating, repeatedly showing you and I something. Um, and I wonder if you know what that is. And also, if you know what that is, then do you know if you're going to step out and trust him in, with that? Peter's most incredible experiences of God's power and provision came when he took the risk of trusting in Jesus. And as disciples, we grow and are sanctified when we choose to trust God in those areas where we'd be most inclined to play it safe. So back to the situation of the storm, Peter gets out of the boat, and he's trusting in Jesus as he walks on the water toward him. 
But then something remarkable happens. In the midst of this amazing experience in which Jesus is enabling Peter by his power to defy the laws of physics and walk in this water, just a moment later, he begins to sink. I mean, it's not like this was a couple weeks later where, where Peter was trying this again to see if it would work. It was in that same moment, and he begins to sink. So the question is, what happened? And we're told that as Jesus took hold of him, he lifts him to safety, and he asks, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And the word doubt here is telling, and it carries the meaning of trying to go in two different directions at the same time. And it seems that what happened is that when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, he became distracted, it says, by the swirling winds, the storm that was around him. And he began to question, most likely, whether the power of that storm was actually greater than the power that Jesus had to keep him afloat. And there's an important lesson here for us as disciples, too, and that is that we have to fight for faith. Even in the midst of a, of, of a situation where Peter was experiencing a spiritual high here, it was possible for him to be distracted by the storms and the circumstances of life. And I think this is actually a good point to bring into the equation the importance of the spiritual disciplines. When difficulties in life come, just as Peter needed to keep his gaze fixed upon Jesus, we need to be able to bring into view that which is true. God's word, recalling God's word and his promises, and then the meditation piece being reflecting upon the ways in which he's been faithful to you in your past. And unless you have these things to draw upon in the difficult seasons, then you'll probably be more inclined to doubt than you will be to trust in him. So there's definitely a place for the disciplines in your life. Well, slowly but surely, we see that the disciples are catching on. And we see at the end of this series of events that the, discipleship, the disciples are worshiping Jesus and they begin to articulate their faith and they recognize him as the son of God and they call him such. And a couple of chapters later in Matthew 16, we read about another instance in which the disciples explain who they understand Jesus to be, but this time he prompts them with the question of, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who always seems to beat the other disciples to the punch, is the one who first responds. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To this point in Matthew's gospel, this is the most complete theological statement about who Jesus is. It's, it's correct. And he reveals that he understands a few things just through this one statement alone. He, he understands that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of Israel. He, Peter understands he's the Son of God, that there's a unique relationship between this man and the Father. And he also understands not, not only is the, the Son of God, but he says the Son of the living God. And he differentiates here between uh, the God who is the author of life and the pagan religions um, around them who worshipped lifeless idols. And Jesus affirms this, and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But while he's affirming what Peter has said, Jesus also makes it very clear here that God is the one who reveals. The blessing here is not so much a, yeah, a boy, you figured that one out, as it is, understand, Peter, this is a blessing because you didn't figure that out on your own, but it was God who revealed this to you. Well, what comes next, right after this, is in complete contrast to what just happened. And once again, it's pretty remarkable. It might catch you a little bit off guard. I know it always does me. <clears throat> and we read in verse 21 that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples 
that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned, Jesus turned, and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. What a humiliating and humbling moment this must have been for Peter. He had just experienced the triumph of declaring rightly who Jesus is, but what we learn from this is just because we're able to say words theologically doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts have followed those words. Peter couldn't conceive at this point of a suffering Messiah. His idea of a Messiah was probably more of somebody who would crush the enemies of Israel and bring in a reign of peace, more of a militaristic view of the Messiah, which was popular in that day. And on a more personal level, I'm sure that the ideal that Peter had in his head was that Jesus would always be with him. He was placing his own will and desires above that of God's, and Jesus called, out, called him out on it. But in referring to him as Satan, or yeah, as Satan, just to be clear here, he wasn't saying that he was literally demon-possessed, but rather that, however unwittingly it was on Peter's part, that his mindset was actually the same, that he was serving as a stumbling block or a source of temptation that was aimed at deviating Jesus from doing God's will. And I think that for us, there's both a warning in this and, and believe it or not, a source of encouragement that comes from this instance between Jesus and Peter. The warning first. Here's the thing. The severity of, of Peter's wrong thinking here was such that if he'd had his way, he ultimately would have prevented God's plan for the salvation of mankind. And it's not a bad question to ask ourselves, where have we put God in a box? Where, because of our own sense of what is right, am, am I robbing myself or perhaps even others from living in the full truth of what the gospel actually is? But at the same time, I think we can take away some encouragement from this situation as well, because we know that Jesus didn't give up on Peter after this moment. It was actually a necessary part of his discipleship journey. The Bible actually tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves. It's actually something that we should probably expect if we are following Christ. It's also important, I think, to note, too, that Peter didn't give up on Jesus. He kept following after Jesus. And we know that he eventually came to embrace Jesus as a suffering Messiah. Well, we're going to take a look at one more chapter in, in Peter's discipleship journey. And this is the events surrounding Peter's denial and ultimately his restoration by Jesus. And that Peter would deny Jesus was first predicted by his Lord in Luke 22, verses 31 and 34. Here Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. We see a promise made here by both people, by both Jesus and Peter. Peter's promise is that he would stick by Jesus' side through thick and thin, even if that meant going to prison or death. And Jesus' promise is that he would ultimately sustain Peter's faith. We see, ultimately, in the context of 
his journey of discipleship, that Peter wasn't able to keep his, pro- his promise, um, that it seems he grew too confident in himself. And all those lessons he had learned earlier on about trusting in Jesus and not fearing where the Lord led him seem to fly out the window at this point as he ends up denying Jesus three times. Jesus, on the other hand, did keep his promise to Peter as we see him later on turning back again. And I hope you catch the depiction of faith that is made here. That there are times when our faith is revealed not through what we do, but through our repentance, through our willingness to recognize where we've gone wrong and to ask God and others for forgiveness of that. I know that for for me, some of my biggest seasons of growth have followed brokenness and repentance from my sin. Repentance is a part of uh, the disciples' journey that that we should expect and is even an expression of faith. Well, we read about Jesus' restoration of Peter in John 21. This takes place after Jesus' resurrection and he encounters the disciples in, the, in, this, um, in this scene. And I'll be reading here in a moment from verses 15 to 19, but just to set a little bit again of the backdrop. Uh, once again, Peter and the disciples are on the shores of the Sea of Galilee fishing. They'd actually returned to what they knew best. Um, and what we see is that they had been all night and had caught nothing, very reminiscent of the first passage that we looked at. And there was this man on the shoreline, and it was Jesus. They didn't recognize him, and he asked them to cast out their nets. And they did, and they pulled in another huge catch of fish. And it was in that, in- in that instant that they recognized that it was their Lord, it was Jesus. And Peter, being who he was, actually jumped out of the boat and swam in front of it back to the shore. He was so excited to see his Lord And we're told Jesus had breakfast with his disciples on the shore of the sea, very likely near the same place Jesus had originally called Peter to follow him. And at this point, in verse 15, we see Jesus restore Peter. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend to my sheep. And Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus questioning here, Peter, three times, the same question, three different times, was an obvious reference to Peter's denial. And it makes it clear that Jesus had forgiven Peter and was restoring him to the mission of taking care of his followers. But in the details here, we also see that Jesus was once again teaching Peter to trust not in himself, but in Jesus. As one commentator remarked, note that Jesus does not address him as Peter the rock, for he had failed to live up to that name. Jesus is facing Peter with his own limitations so that he might entrust himself in a new way to Christ's leadership. Simon on his own will always be Simon. He has no capacity to rise beyond that. But Simon trusting in Jesus is Peter the rock, 
from whose witness and leadership the church will receive its earliest foundation. Shortly after Jesus' restoration of Peter, he ascended to heaven, but he, didn't, he, he only departed physically from them. And what we see early on in the book of Acts is the inauguration of a new era in which the disciples would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the life that God had called them to. And we see this kicked off even by Peter at Pentecost preaching uh, to the masses and thousands coming to Christ. And as followers of Christ today, we have that same spirit dwelling within us that dwelled within Peter and the disciples. And some of you may ask, and I know I have, why couldn't we just have a physical Jesus to follow after? but we have something that's better. We have the Holy Spirit who is always with us. Jesus himself says, it is better that I go and send you my spirit. As you continue to trace Peter's journey through the book of Acts, you see that he still gets things wrong and he still needs to be sanctified. The Holy Spirit provides us the power to be changed, but this comes through our leaning on that power. Our journey as disciples much like Peter's, is going to be one that has bumps and setbacks and doubts and even disobedience along the way. And if there's a consistent theme through all the accounts of Peter's discipleship journey that we've taken a look at, it was that Peter was constantly faced with the dilemma in his soul as to whether to operate in his own strength and understanding or whether to trust the Lord with these things. And this process of growth and sanctification was anything but linear for him. There are times when Peter embraced what Jesus was showing him and other times where he was rejecting it and and Jesus had to come back around time and again to these things. Our journey, much like Peter's, is more like a spiral than a straight line where we experience what God is revealing of himself and then we have a choice to either embrace that or reject that. And then either way, we reflect that to the world around us. And that process continues on either spiraling toward God or away from him. This, this process in our discipleship journey of experiencing, embracing, and reflecting is important enough to us here at Terra, and we see that ingrained in the DNA even of Scripture, that that is the way in which we approach reading the Bible, and we see that especially in our tribes, which many of you are familiar with, um, our small groups, and, and the way in which we go about reading the Bible there. And we do it through three lenses which correspond with these different phases of our discipleship spiral. And the first is we read scripture through the, ex, the lens, uh, the exter- or excuse me, the eternal lens of, of who God is. We ask ourselves, what does this passage say about God? And this is always the place that we want to start because when we, when we understand him better, we understand ourselves better because we were made in his image. And that corresponds with the experiencing what he's revealing to us phase of the discipleship spiral. The next lens through which we read the scriptures is the internal lens. This is the piece where we're asking, what is God saying to me through this text? This is the the point of personal interaction with the text, where we're, we're seeking to hear from God where he's calling us to obedience or where he's calling us to confession of sin. And this correlates with the embrace or reject piece of the discipleship spiral. And then finally, there's the external lens through which we read the Bible, which is asking the question, how does this apply to me and how does this apply to those around me that God has put in my life? This is the action point where we seek to determine how God is calling us to work out what it is he's revealed. And this corresponds with the reflection piece of the discipleship spiral, that as we embrace what God has revealed, we begin to reflect that to the world around us. I don't want it to be missed here that this process of discipleship um, is not only better uh, 
in the context of community. God has designed it to take place in the context of community. That as we experience God and work those things out and seek to reflect that, that that happens much more efficiently in the context of doing that together with other believers. And at Terra, that kind of community takes place in our tribes. And, and our tribes are our small groups that meet twice a month on a formal basis and then informally outside of that where we gather together, maybe 15 or so of us, give or take, to study the word together, to worship and pray, uh, to serve one another and to serve alongside one another, our communities around us. And, and these, these tribes wouldn't be in existence if it wasn't for the leaders of those tribes. Uh, they're really the heart and soul of discipleship at Terranova. There's five of us pastors and 400 of you, and we just couldn't do a good job in discipling each and every one of you. And so much of that happens through our tribe leaders. And we're thankful for them. And we actually want to take time right now to pray for them. And so if you are a tribe leader and you're here at the service, would you just stand up wherever you are in the room? And uh, I'm going to ask, as they do, stand up. Don't be bashful, guys. Um, if you are near them, would you just surround them and maybe lay a hand on their shoulder? And I'm going to give you guys, the congregation, the body at Terra, a couple of minutes to pray for these men and women. Um, pray that God would uh, protect and bless their ministries and family, and then I'll pray to close. So go ahead and take a few minutes to pray for these leaders. Father, I, I just want to <clears throat> join in the prayers that are already being prayed that I know are are thankful for these tribe leaders. We want to actually first thank you, Lord, that you would even uh, make us in, into your disciples, that you've called us, Lord. And, um, uh, but Lord, we know that you equip us um, largely through the work of the body, and, um, and we thank you for these leaders, Lord. And we pray that you'd raise up more leaders, Lord, uh, to continue discipleship at, at Terra um, at the tribe level. And Father, we pray for you to protect these men and women, their families, and, and their ministries. Lord, we know that they are targets of the enemy for the work that they do, and we just pray that you would surround them with your protection. And Lord, we ask that you would encourage them in places in their walk with you where they may be discouraged, and, and we ask, Lord, that you would make their, um, their communities that they're leading, the, the tribes that they're a part of, places where uh, the love of Jesus is on display, both to encourage and edify those within that tribe, but also to serve as a light to the world outside. And, and Father, I know that we're, we're only able to, um, to love and to lead and to minister to others as deeply as we are investing in, in you. And, and I pray that you would pour into them, these leaders, your love, your character, um, and your wisdom so that they could serve you and these people out of the overflow of those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for supporting our tribe leaders in this way, just praying for them. Please continue to do so. Um, I would ask you to do that on a regular basis. And thank you for our tribe leaders, for the sacrifice um, that you've made to serve in this way. It's a blessing, but it's, it's also a sacrifice. We're going to move into a time of, um, of response now, and I'm going to call the band to, to return to the stage. And, and, and this will include an opportunity to respond during worship, um, but also during communion. And there'll be two people up front, with uh, one with broken pieces of matzah representing Christ's body broken for you, and, and the other with either wine or juice um, representing Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you are a disciple of Christ, a follower of his, then you are welcome at this table today. Bef before you, you come up, I encourage you to think and, and pray through these things. Where in your own discipleship journey 
um, are you right now? Where have what you've seen in, in Peter's journey, where has that resonated with you? Where's your own journey intersected with that? And take those things to the Lord and also consider where you're at in that spiral. Maybe God has been revealing something to you and maybe he's been doing that over and over and you've been hesitant, you've been more on that rejection side, hesitant to embrace that. But he's calling you to trust him so that you're going to give him an opportunity to demonstrate his power and provision in your life. So take some time to pray about those things and let's close our time together in prayer. Father, thank you for being a God who is more powerful than any circumstances that life can throw our way. Forgive us for the fears and for the doubts that have triumphed over our trust in you, God. And thank you that even as you have saved us by your grace, so you sustain our faith by your grace. Help us to see you more clearly and empower us with your spirit to embrace the things, Father, that you have shown us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.